It's time now for Illinois Innovators, spotlighting the leaders in research, technology, and entrepreneurship from the engineering at Illinois community. Welcome to another edition of Illinois Innovators. I'm your host, Mike Kuhn. In today's episode, we'll be chatting with Praveen Kumar, a professor of civil and environmental engineering at the University of Illinois. He holds a Ph.D. in civil engineering from the University of Minnesota and served as editor-in-chief for Water Resources Research, the major scientific journal in the field. He's an expert in hydrology, hydroclimatology, and hydrocomplexity. He and a graduate student examined the significance of non-extreme precipitation in context of global climate change and published the results in a paper in Nature Scientific Reports last fall. Professor Kumar, welcome to the program. Thank you. Uh, good morning. And uh, uh, it's a pleasure to uh, have this opportunity to talk. Uh, briefly, just talk about your research, uh, what your lab gen- in general, um, the, the goals are, and, and some of the things that you've worked on in the past. Okay. So in our research, we focus on uh, the problems associated with the connection between climate change, water uh, resources, uh, vegetation, and uh, uh, land surface processes. So uh, we try and look at how changes in one cascade to the other system, so interlinkages between these systems rather than each of these systems in isolation. So one of the things that gets talked about climate change, they're looking at major events, uh, tsunamis, hurricanes, droughts, these kinds of things. But this latest report, you talked about just in general the rain pattern, uh, how that uh, slight change could really affect the ecosystem. Right. I mean, so most of the climate change uh, story is, uh, uh, for good reasons, focused on extreme events uh, because they tend to impact uh, the human systems over a shorter period of time and are heavily consequential in that short period of time. So from a hydrologic perspective, it's the floods uh, and the droughts um, and major uh, rainfall events. Uh, But... the climate change should essentially impact all aspects of the variability. Uh, in our particular case, we looked at the variability of rainfall. So we know it doesn't rain every day. Uh, and when it rains, it's not the same amount every day. So what we were looking at is whether the regular rainfall patterns is that, the one which we say day to day, is that going is being affected by climate change, not just the extreme events. So while extreme events have a significant uh, economic cost immediately, uh, the non-extreme events are responsible for maintenance of the ecosystems in rivers and on the land surface. Uh, they basically regulate uh, the dynamics between land surface and climate system, the weather patterns on a regular basis. So if those are changing, then we uh, may not be uh, seeing a lot of the changes very easily, but they may have uh, long-term consequences. So that was the essentially the goal. So when we look at rainfall variability, uh, there are many aspects that uh, characterize this variability. It is uh, the frequency of rainfall, the timing of the rainfall, the magnitude uh, of rainfall, uh, the inter-arrival pattern uh, between rainfall events. So there are many aspects. So what we tried to do in this pattern, uh, in this paper, is look at uh, these many uh, uh, aspects of rainfall variability. 
So briefly, uh, you had a graduate student to work on that. Uh, I want to give her credit for that uh, as well. So I'll let you uh, uh, chime in there and also talk about uh, the length of time that you studied and uh, the areas where you actually took data from. Yes. So Susanna Roque Malo, uh, she is a graduate student. She's presently doing PhD with me. Uh, this study formed uh, part of her master's thesis. And so she worked uh, on this uh, a little over two years, um, and uh, she uh, was looking into all the statistical analysis and the aspects of uh, these studies. Uh, so she gets a lot of the credit. I mean, as you know, uh, in academics, uh, our students do a bulk of the work under the guidance of the faculty. So give us an idea how far back you went, where you uh, took your data from. And yeah, so... Uh, the rainfall data is available through NOAA website, uh, and there are certain some companies who have archived this and cleaned this up a little bit better. So we had data from Earth Info, and this data goes back uh, about a hundred years, but it's not uniform across the uh, uh, across all stations. So uh, there are several thousand stations in the North American continent which we looked at. And we had to clean up the data in the sense we had to filter it for its quality, uh, consistency, uh, length of record, uh, because some stations come and go, they get moved around, they get changed. So we had to factor in all those. So we were able to perform several decades of analysis with uh, most of the stations, uh, but uh, the data is not uniform across the last 100 years across all stations. So are you finding a significant change over the last two or three decades, or you know, when do you see kind of the fluctuation from, from what was uh, previously normal? Yeah, so what we uh, have uh, seen in this analysis uh, is that, first of all, you have to look at uh, rainfall variability in a very nuanced way. So we looked at changes in magnitude of rainfall, uh, average annual precipitation as an example, uh, we looked at the number of uh, rainy days in a year, uh, the length between rainfall events. So once you have, there could be five days before the next arri uh, arrival of rainfall, seven days, three days. So we looked at the average behavior of those. Uh, we looked at uh, length of uh, dry periods. Uh, so we looked at several attributes over these uh, 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 several decades of data. And our finding was that when we're looking at changes in rainfall, uh, some stations may show uh, a trend in one attribute and not in another. So there are very few stations, there are about 500 stations that show changes in all attributes. But there are many more stations, uh, rainfall stations, which show changes in one attribute versus another uh, attribute. So we essentially looked at linear trends. Uh, so it's it was very daunting to go back and say whether there is a sudden change in the last 30 years or uh, last 20 years. So we are looking at essentially gradual long-term trends uh, across these uh, data sets. So, so talk about the effects of if we get a deluge of rain, what that does for growing and, and the, that ecosystem versus if you get a a full day's worth of rain that's a steady rain, that type of thing. What, what, uh, what, what are the effects generally on the ecosystem from, from a various uh, array of types of rains? And then 
uh, you mentioned rainfall between how many days in between a rainfall event. Yeah, so the uh, general understanding is uh, that it's not so much the short deluge versus the long deluge. I mean, we can put the extreme events aside because they have a very dramatic impact both on human infrastructure. They can reshape uh, river systems. Uh, they can reshape ecosystems. But on a day-to-day -day basis, basically the rainfall uh, is the primary uh, resource for uh, the terrestrial ecosystems like vegetation uh, and aquatic ecosystems for fishes and the critters in the uh, stream system. So as you know, if you get very prolonged uh, periods of dry uh, uh, situation, then the low flow in the river goes down significantly and then that can impact the ecosystems dr dramatically. So we want uh, most of the rain for the, from an ecosystem perspective, and from a human infrastructure uh, perspective to be contained within a certain uh, variability range. Uh, there is a variability at all scales. You can look at it from a daily perspective. You can look at it from a seasonal perspective. So it's uh, a so lot of um, competition between species. Uh, they take um, uh, opportunities in this variability to spawn, for example. So when you have a a large flood event, certain species will find space to spawn versus other species. Basically, it gives them a competitive advantage. In the, so when we are looking at changes in these things, we are looking at basically affecting uh, the interaction between these different species, the dominance of different species. So you can have invasive species uh, taking uh, advantage uh, of a change situation and invading an ecosystem which may not otherwise have happened. So uh, we're hoping that our study will basically uh, uh, open up windows to start looking at some of these questions, which we have not that focused that much on because we have been essentially always thinking uh, in terms of the extremes. So how drastic a change are we talking? Well, it's gradual. I mean, that is the interesting point. I mean, it's not... Uh, a change uh, that will hit you in the head saying it has happened, but that is what is uh, scary about it. It's a creeping change, and uh, we haven't paid that much attention to how a creeping change uh, is going to impact uh, our systems. So prior to our study, there have been some smaller-scale studies, similar uh, studies which basically have shown that this is happening in some parts of the uh, continent, but nothing that looks at uh, continent-wide. And what we were able to show is that across the continent, uh, the patterns are not uniformly the same. So there is a general understanding that under climate change, because the air is warmer, it will hold uh, more moisture. And then when it rains, the rainfall will be more intense. And so that is the general uh, understanding. But what we are seeing through empirical data is that is not broadly generalizable in there. Uh, so this idea that wet uh, regions get wetter and dry regions get drier is not 
so broadly applicable. There are limits to it. Uh, and what we were finding is basically there are microclimates in which this pattern may not hold. So these microclimates may be driven by biomes, uh, particular types of vegetation. They may be driven by topographic variability in terms of uh, elevation gradient that exists. So these changes can be much more localized. So what this works opens up uh, uh, a window for us to look at it as to how these microclimates may be impacting the variability. So you talk about reading the data. Uh, how much do you see this as a predictor of where we're heading in terms of, of these uh, of this climate change? You talked about it being gradual, but uh, can you take the data and sort of uh, prognosticate out to see you know how things are going to change in the next few decades even? Yeah, I am one of those people who is reluctant to do that uh, because simply because uh, I don't have a basis to do that. Uh, and the reason I'm saying that is that to the best of my knowledge, most of the climate models don't reproduce these patterns very well. So a lot of the climate model studies have been focused on trying to uh, get the extreme events uh, better characterized and the low frequency, uh, or rather the high frequency events uh, are uh, less well uh, studied uh, in terms of the ability of the climate model to reproduce this. So one of our goals from this study was to basically inform the climate uh, com modeling community that this is another aspect of rainfall variability which may serve as a benchmark for validation. And if we get that, then we would be able to uh, uh, predict, uh, I don't know, characterize the what would happen in the future. I, you, I'm reluctant to use the word uh, prediction uh, because it has a certain... Uh, uh, notion of uh, certainty. So, uh, so what can we do about it to maybe prevent this from happening? Or um, and then beyond that, how do we how do we react to it? How how do we prepare an ecosystem for these kinds of changes? Yeah. So, how do we prepare for it? I mean, the, the first thing is that what our study is empirically based. So, this is not a climate model output. And therefore, there is more veracity to saying, okay, this is really happening, all right? And uh, so uh, how far and what are the trajectories it will go through will depend on how the climate changes. And as you know, I mean, there are many scenarios uh, of uh, climate change depending on uh, uh, what kind of economic growth and industrial uh, production uh, we forecast uh, for the future. So... In the worst case, it can get pretty extreme. It can get pretty bad. Uh, in the best case, if uh, the climate change is cur curtailed, then we may not see a uh, uh, very drastic uh, uh, change in there. So much depends on how we look at the climate change uh, story uh, in this thing. On the ground level, I mean, definitely this is, uh, first of all, we have to be become aware that uh, just focusing on the extreme events is not going to solve our problem. I mean, there are a lot of things that are happening on a regular day-to-day, -day, and those are changing. And uh, so at, at this time, I don't think the understanding is there in terms of how these will impact the system. So this, uh, in my mind, this might be the beginning of a, a series of studies which would start to look at uh, how we treat these systems. Well, your uh, lab on... Uh, hydro complexity 
Just talk about some of the other things that, that, that you touch on. I know that you've done some studies on floods and things like that. So um, talk about some of the other things that, that, that you are touching as, re, as it relates to the water as a resource. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, we uh, look at, uh, as I said, the integration of uh, the land uh, system, the vegetation, the climate, and uh, rainfall being an important driver. So uh, in our lab, we have been uh, looking at uh, several aspects of this. Well, uh, about a decade ago, we started looking at um, how climate change impacts vegetation response. How can we can model them? The work has been going on for a long period of time uh, uh, from various groups, and there are a lot of experiments uh, that had been done. But we started doing uh, modeling with this to basically look at how vegetation responds to climate change. And whenever we're thinking of climate change, we are primarily looking into rainfall change and temperature change. The third aspect of climate change is just the increase in concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And that impact affects plant system uh, and the plants acclimate to that. Uh, so there's a lot of experimental studies, including one on our campus with the face site uh, and there. So we partner with uh, folks at the face site like uh, uh, Steve Long. Uh, and we developed a model, uh, and that model has become a foundation for looking at much broader scale um, examination of uh, this interaction between climate variability, vegetation, and how it affects uh, the hydrologic cycle. Because when vegetation changes in response to climate, then it impacts uh, the water uh, resources. So that's one aspect. Another aspect we have looked at is basically how this may affect uh, vector-borne diseases because we are changing the hydrologic conditions on the ground. Uh, we are changing the persistence of water uh, in uh, puddles where mosquitoes breed and grow. And so if those persistence patterns change, will that uh, affect uh, vector-borne diseases? The third uh, work that we are doing is uh, under the umbrella of what is what we call a critical zone science. So this is a National Science Foundation project we have uh, where we look at uh, what is described as the critical zone from the top of the vegetation canopy to deep into the groundwater system. And it's called critical because uh, this is where most of the terrestrial life forms live. So this is a space where uh, life interacts with abiotic environment, rock, soil, uh, water. And so this zone has been studied in uh, disciplinary ways uh, by hydrologists, uh, geomorphologists, biogeochemistry people, ecology, and so forth. But this project is where we try and bring everybody together and ask questions that have not been asked before, at looking at the interfaces between disciplines, interfaces that may exist in the land uh, uh, system. So by looking, examining this interaction, we can better understand uh, what creates uh, the quality of water that goes in the stream, uh, what creates the ecosystem productivity, in particular, in our region, uh, basically, how can we sustain agricultural production uh, and at the same time mitigate uh, some environmental challenges uh, that arise because of that. So our goal is to basically look at this in an integrated way and then try and understand what we could do for the future, both in terms of uh, socioeconomic developments and climate change-related uh, pressures.
Could it be that uh, you know we we're used to uh, growing the same crops in the same places as regions change? You know, f from a climate standpoint, grow different crops, different places, more concentrated, that sort of thing. Yeah. So one uh, change in crops is one of the things uh, potentially. Uh, irrigation coming into regions where there was no irrigation is another thing. Bioenergy crops uh, coming in because of economic uh, uh, incentives uh, or economic pressures. Uh, so, I mean, if you look at the 100-year history of this region, cropping uh, practices have changed, right? And there is no reason to uh, assume that is going to be this now stable for the next 100 years. It's going to likely to change. So what is the framework for really understanding uh, these things? How do we uh, really uh, create a healthy soil, as an example, uh, which will sustain our productivity? Uh, because, it, I mean, everything we do uh, in the short term has great economic benefits, but in the long term uh, may erode the same ability. So we want to basically understand both the short term and the long term uh, view as to what's going on. So we may inform the short-term practices uh, so as to sustain uh, the long-term uh, practices. So talk about the interdisciplinary aspect of this. Who do you work with either uh, on this campus or, you know, globally? Uh, because there are people that are making these kinds of decisions. Uh, and, and you provide, as you said, a lot of empirical uh, information that, that help the, the broader uh, base make really uh, good decisions for the future. Yeah, so uh, basically our project on the Critical Zone uh, Observatory is uh, funded by the National Science Foundation. We are one of a network of nine observatories across the country. And uh, so while we have a pretty large team, uh, we have uh, participation from seven universities, uh, several state and federal agencies, uh, many students uh, p participating in this uh, effort. Uh, but each of the other observatories have similar groups, so we interact within our observatory and uh, we interact across uh, these uh, different observatories. So within our observatory, we have participation from University of Iowa, Northwestern University, Purdue, uh, University of uh, Tennessee, Indiana University. Uh, we had participation from Minnesota uh, and uh, so we have uh, USGS, uh, Prairie Research Institute, Lina Water Survey, Geological Survey involved in this. And there are, I'm pretty sure, forget, I'm forgetting a few mm -hmm. in there. So uh, we have brought together people from these uh, discipline backgrounds to understand what's going on uh, in the Midwest in general. We have study sites in Iowa and uh, here in Illinois. And we partner with folks in Minnesota uh, to look at this uh, thing. But... Uh, we have also started to partner internationally. So uh, this landscape uh, is a young landscape. It uh, was last glaciated around uh, 10 to 12,000 years ago. Uh, glaciation ended about 10 to 12,000 years ago. Uh, but if, uh, and since then, uh, there has been deposition of loss, which is basically wind-driven soil. Uh, so depending on where you are in the Midwest, it can be anywhere from 1 to 10 meters uh, deep. But there is less uh, system in China, uh, which is uh, 100 to 150 meters thick. Uh, so they have similar agriculture-related uh, challenges. So we partner with uh, an institution in China, uh, Institute for Environment, uh, Earth and Environment in Chinese Academy of Science. Uh, and uh, so uh, we're trying to see what we 
we learn from our uh, systems? Uh, how does it inform things outside? What can we learn from outside which can inform us? So it's starting to coalesce in a much broader dialogue, both nationally and globally, uh, in terms of understanding how our land surface and our systems work uh, and provide the functionality and the ecosystem services and the critical zone services that we depend on. So it sounds like you're getting reception from really around the world in terms of understanding the the, the need and and uh, you know trying to find critical solutions to you know, to climate uh, broadly, but for cer- certainly uh, in in water as a resource resource uh, more specifically. Yes, I mean the bottom line is that uh, the problems that we deal with now are far more complex. Uh, than they were 30 years, 40 years ago. And uh, also the way we understand these interdependencies, uh, our knowledge is far richer now than what it was 20, 30, 40 years ago when there was a big infrastructure push to find solutions through green revolution and so forth, right? So the fact that we are recognizing that we have a far more complex system uh, and takes more than one person or one discipline or one region or one country to actually solve this. Uh, It requires a paradigm shift in terms of how we uh, look at the problem, how we approach the problem, how we think about it, and uh, how we develop solutions uh, in there. So within this context, uh, there is a growing recognition that uh, there is definitely a need to expand the scientific underpinnings on which we uh, develop the solution. But it's not just the science. I mean, in this case, what is happening is that the human story, the societal engagement, uh, the economic, socioeconomic development, uh, that is impacting a lot of the natural processes. So we can't just study only the natural processes in terms of that surface and climate by ignoring the uh, human dimension of the story. So the goal is to bring these components together uh, and understand them better. So what's next? What's next uh, in your research lab? What's next in, in, in this field? What, what can we expect to hear over the next four or five years, say? Uh, so uh, we're hoping that this uh, critical zone project is uh, going to be renewed by the National Science Foundation. So uh, we are in the fifth year presently, uh, and it was a five-year project. So uh, there will be hopefully a call, and we'll recompete to uh, for the continuation of this. Uh, but by and large, I mean, I think from our group, we are uh, looking at uh, the emergence of new technologies, uh, for example, remote sensing uh so aerial remote sensing through drones and uh, uh, fixed-wing aircrafts, they're providing very rich set of data, very high-resolution data. So how do we incorporate such high-resolution, high-density data into models? Uh, I mean, that is a challenge uh, that is open. How uh, do we think about these interdependencies in new, new ways? How do we incorporate uh, issues across these disciplines uh, and the bigger challenge is for the students because as these problems become more complex, they are tasked with uh, basically understanding the complexity of this. Uh, so the traditional training of the students where they would get trained in one area and go deeper uh, in that area is potentially insufficient to help address these questions. So it is providing unique opportunities for students to be able to uh, basically break the uh, old style uh, paradigm 
and think more broadly across disciplines. Their knowledge base is different. Uh, the courses that they take to prepare to address these, these challenges are different. So we're looking at all these aspects. It seemed to me as, as an outsider that it's great that you have a seat at the table because there's a lot of decisions that societies are making, um, and these should be uh, you know critical uh, points of, of information when, when you're making these decisions. So, uh, I mean, do you feel like that, uh, that your group is, is involved and will be continue to be more involved in the future? Yeah, I'm hoping so. I mean, I think uh, uh, the research that we have published so far has had good reception by the community uh, and by the media as well. And I think one of the challenges uh, is that getting the research results out disseminated very quickly uh, to the public so that they can be incorporated into practice uh, is important. And uh, so the research coming out from our group, broadly from the critical zone uh, research, uh, has had good uh, reception and it has been embraced. And we're hoping that that will continue and uh, basically reduce the time from uh, the scientific understanding to practices so we can inform that uh, better, be it practice in the field or in policy or whatever other instruments there are to actually uh, make decisions. Well, we've uh, enjoyed talking with you. I know that this is uh, kind of a sliver of, of the many things that uh, that you do in your lab, and uh, we appreciate you stopping to chat with us. And uh, if you've got anything else, feel free to, to come back, and, and we can talk on this or, or whatever topics you'd like. Well, thank you for the opportunity. I enjoyed it, and um, uh, I hope uh, there will be other uh, opportunities to do this again. All right. Praveen Kumar, uh, professor of... Civil and Environmental Engineering has been our guest. I'm your host, Mike Kuhn. This has been another edition of Illinois Innovators. Illinois Innovators is a production of Engineering at Illinois. All rights reserved. We invite you to subscribe to the podcast through iTunes or SoundCloud by searching Engineering at Illinois. We hope you'll help grow our corpse of listeners by leaving a favorable rating on iTunes. <laughs>